Hello, friends. Welcome back. My name is Fleur, and you are listening to the Inner Call podcast. Today, I am thrilled about my guest, Evan Alexander, because he is bringing in this super logical, super rational, super scientific point of view that I love. You know, intuition is not just hocus pocus. It is not really hocus pocus at all, to be honest. It's not woo woo. It's not out there. It is and can be found in logical, rational thought. It can be a learned skill and the scientific community can back it up. I am 100% sure of this. Now, even Alexander is and was a neurosurgeon who had a near-death experience and it changed his perception of consciousness forever. He wrote a book called Proof of Heaven that came out in 2012, which for me marked a very important time in my life. I had just graduated from university and was sitting on the fence with splinters in my ass as to whether or not I quote unquote believed in something bigger than myself. You know, I had already been doing sessions with people I was already really deep in this work, but I'm not gonna lie, there was a little doubting voice in the back of my mind, always, like always. It was insistent that I pay attention to it. And so in 2012, when Proof of Heaven came out, which was his autobiography, his experience of this near-death experience with a very clinical, scientific, fact-based, logical approach, for me, it was a blessing because it was like, oh, okay, maybe there is a scientific lens through which I can understand and explain what I'm feeling, what I'm sensing, what I'm knowing. Huge for me. And so it's a delight to have him on today to talk about that. He's gone on to write other books, including the more recent one, Living in a Mindful Universe, which I think is a fascinating one. It brings up a lot of new modern scientific research that he believes if we were to really look at and really study, there would be no question. You know, he truly believes that anyone who considers themselves a student of consciousness, a student of the ability for us to know what's going on in the brain if they were to truly read all the literature, truly have all the facts, that no one could logically say that there isn't something beyond our own physical bodies, that it's not the gelatinous mass in your head that's creating all your knowledge, that there's something beyond that. And he truly feels that the current research and current literature speaks to that. I find it a fascinating topic. I personally feel like this is the future. We are going to unveil and uncover more and more and more of this. Mr. Alexander already seems to believe that we have it all at our fingertips and I 100% agree. Yet, I love this discussion because I I can't lie to you, you know, like when I speak to my students, they're often so surprised to find that there is still a tiny little sliver of doubt that shows up for me every once in a while. And you know what? I kind of like that sliver of doubt because it gives me a skeptic's edge. It makes me question and look at and study and really not just believe my own point of view or my own lens. So I do love that aspect. However, I don't always love the disruption that occurs within myself if the doubt gets to kind of be too big. It hasn't happened in a while, but I always just love that sense of let's have a conversation about it. Let's bring a logical edge to it. Let's bring rational thought to it. So for me, this conversation is just incredible. I had a great time speaking to even Alexander. I think he's 
so smart and that the conversation was so interesting. And I truly believe you could listen to this episode a couple of times and still get something new out of it because it is information packed. I also think it is the perfect episode to send to a friend who's super logical and science-based who kind of needs this rational way of looking at things. So go ahead and make sure you send it to them because that is going to be a very interesting conversation, especially with somebody who who you might have had a conversation with in the past who is just like really, 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 really non-believing in anything beyond this physical body any ability for intuition, any ability for energy to communicate in any kind of way, like this might be the episode that will pique their interest. I wanted to quickly say, I mentioned a few things. One, we abbreviate near-death experience to NDE quite often during this podcast, but never actually speak of the abbreviation. So I wanted to just mention that. And then I also wanted to mention that I bring up the Grayson scale at one point, and we get a little nerdy about it. And you might not know what the Grayson scale is, but it is an NDE scale that this professor psychiatrist, Bruce Grayson, developed that measures the depth of an individual's near-death experience. So it's like a checklist of what qualifies, what doesn't qualify. And I bring that up at one point from the vantage point of, you know, did he ever kind of question the realness of it all? So enjoy. I love this episode. I hope you love it too. I hope to see you back here soon and have a wonderful day. Hello, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to meet you. Well, good to meet you too. Where where are you where are you calling from? In Virginia. Virginia. So about a two and a half hour drive to the southwest of Washington, DC, out towards the mountains. Okay. Wow, that sounds beautiful. It is. It's very nice. We love it here. Yeah. Nice. I was super excited because it for me is quite a how I put it, like full circle moment in a way. I was studying neuroscience at UCLA as a undergraduate, and it was during this period of time that I wanted to start working as a psychic, but was terrified and worked in the closet, so to speak, for years under a fake name, really struggled with the like neuroscience, medicine aspect, couldn't really, you know, like wrap my head around it. And then in that exact period of time, your book came out into the world. Well, good. Well, there are a lot of scientists who uh, are right on board with me. So uh, I love you know, it. got a lot of supporters in that community. Yeah. Uh, so you're very fortunate. True. I think I've now been working for 14 years. And so even I'm seeing a huge shift. When yeah. 14 years ago, everyone was like, wait, what? What are you doing? <laughs> and then now everyone kind of knows at least someone who's had some experience, someone who's talked about it openly. So there's there's just so much more traction there. Uh-huh. But there's always going to be the naysayers, of course. Well, they'll be there until they just run out of uh, nonsense and the, they realize that the evidence uh, proves them wrong. So I like that approach. Someday that'll change. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, so your story. I want to say there's like two primary facts about you that really bring you to your work right now. And one is you are a neurosurgeon. Uh-huh. And then two, you've had a near-death experience. Right. That challenged your concept of what is consciousness, what is our nervous system state, how do we engage with the world? So I'd love to have you 
tell me a little bit? Obviously, I've read the books. I kind of know where you're coming from, but that way we're all like solid ground as to what your what your experience was and all of that. Okay. One question. Are you familiar with my third book, Living in a Mindful Universe? I was listening to it this morning. Good. Okay. Because that goes, you know, a few light years beyond proof of heaven. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, this is all about the synthesis of science and spirituality. That's what's happening. And that is actually where I want to go today. I just want to start it off as like bedrock. Sure. This is what jump started it. And then we can like forget that story because I'm sure you've talked about it a million times. What I'm really interested in is the consciousness is like all of it. So that's definitely where I want to take it. Well, good. We'll get deep into that. Yeah, sounds good. But yeah, if you if you can give me a, a brief description as to your own jumpstart into all of it. Okay. Well, I, you know, it's important to point out, I spent the first 54 years of my life owning a very conventional scientific worldview. My father was very influential in my life, but and he was the head of a neurosurgical training program, very scientifically minded, but he also had a strong faith in God. He'd grown up with that. It accompanied him through uh, World War II when he was a combat surgeon in the Pacific and all of that. So that was my upbringing was open-minded spiritually, but uh, hardcore with the science. And uh, that's what I was, why I was gifted, I think, with this incredible journey that I had back in November 2008. And I think the important things to stress about that near-death experience uh, is, for one, the atypical feature that just really jumps out at you. And that was my amnesia, that I had no memory of Evan Alexander's life. And, uh, you know, it took me months or years to kind of get why that was uh, after the coma experience. Uh, but in essence, it was uh, to get me to pay big attention to it. If it had been scripted like most NDEs, including, you know, if I had scripted this, my father would have been there, my adoptive father, who had passed over four years before my coma. But he was nowhere to be found in the whole adventure. And that part was a shock to me, especially as I read more and more accounts about near-death experiences. Uh, but the essence of the journey, you know, in, in the midst of this NDE, and it happened during a seven-day coma that was induced by severe gram-negative bacterial meningoencephalitis. And that's very important. And that's why the medical case report uh, on my medical records that came out uh, September 2018 in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease by Serbi Kana, uh, Lauren Moore, and Bruce Grayson is so important because they had a lot of time to go through all my medical records in more detail than I had gone through them. And basically, they, they hit two shocking conclusions around the publication of this case report. One is that they documented fully that my brain was far too damaged based on evidence from neurologic exams, CT and MRI scans showing it was a global process, that there was no part of my neocortex unscathed. Given that data that they present in the case report, that brain could not have harbored any kind of dream or hallucination. That's the part that many out there who are not medically educated don't get. But it's a hard fact of the medical records and uh, any physician who goes through them will realize, well, wait a minute, this is unprecedented. That's basically what the peer reviewers at the scientific journal demanded of these authors. This case is absurd. How do you explain it? Nobody's ever come back in the medical literature from this severe case of, of meningitis to a full recovery. And the explanation was, well, because he had a near-death experience, that's what allowed for this profound healing. 
And it's because they knew of other cases like Anita Morjani healing her advanced lymphoma or Dr. Mary C. Neal, who had an over 30 minute warm water drowning while kayaking in Chile back in the late 1990s. Both of them wrote books about their experiences. And it, what it is very clear from these stories and many like them in the indie literature is that we're truly spiritual beings and this is a spiritual universe. And we have tremendous power to influence our own kind of wholeness and coming into wholeness. We've lost touch with that power. And uh, this is why I, as a healer, find that some of the deepest lessons of my journey have to do with healing, coming into wholeness, and using that binding force of love that near-death experiencers have witnessed going back thousands of years, no matter what their prior belief system, and using that for the power to heal, to come into wholeness with one's kind of soul journey. And that's really been kind of a beautiful aspect of this. And of course, I'm a scientist, so I've had to go back and reflect on my entire journey, not just the week in coma, but you know, more than a decade spent meditating every day to get back into that journey. And I use meditation to return to that all the time. And I can tell you from our workshops that many people who've never had an NDE have come to learn a tremendous amount about their spiritual nature by pursuing uh, you know, this kind of meditation. I was really interested when I was reading about the Grayson scale, because my first question when I come across your work is like, hmm, he never had a moment of doubt after that, right? That's like my first question, because I, I work in the spiritual realm. I am 99.9% convinced, but I did come from a very scientific upbringing. I spent those years studying neuroscience. There was always that like tiny little bit that I think made me a really good medium because I was constantly looking for more and more and more and more. But what I find so interesting is this Grayson scale because the NDE seems to have a very potent experience that would make it hard to question. Is that is that right? Well, that's very true. But it's important to point out to people, though, that in my own case, I was really my own worst skeptic at the beginning. Same. You know, this was <laughs> so wild, so completely unexpected and like, oh, my God, that I thought and, and, and I, I'd not read the literature much, so I didn't really understand the general patterns. So when I tried to explain it all to my doctors, you know, in the first week or so after I came out of coma, they would just pat me on the back and say, well, you were very, very sick, but your brain was soaking in pus. In fact, we have no idea how you're coming back to us now, but you can forget about anything that you saw in the midst of it all because the dying brain plays all kinds of tricks. So they gave me my first clue that this was a dying brain playing tricks. Now, my neuroscientific knowledge from, you know, uh, 25 years spent in academic neurosurgery, 15 years teaching at Harvard Medical School, was not yet back. That knowledge came back slowly over about two months, my semantic knowledge. Mm. And uh, that was very strange because during that two months, I was going back to the hospital, meeting with my doctors, going through physical therapy, uh, you know, trying to recover from all this. Uh, and initially, my recovery looked very frightening to my family when I first came out of coma. You know, 36 hours of a paranoid delusional nightmare in those first you know, day and a half after I woke up from coma. And only then did things start to stabilize out. But my brain was so destroyed by this process that when I first woke up in the IC room on day seven of coma, I didn't even recognize my mother, my sisters, my sons at the bedside. The amnesia was still very, very active. 
words and language were coming back quickly. Childhood memories started coming back even over the first day or two. But initially when I woke up, it was a very frightening thing for my family. Uh, and so I started as my own worst skeptic. I remember when my son came home, you know, two days after I got out of the hospital, day before Thanksgiving, 2008, he was majoring in neuroscience in college at the time. He had been to my bedside while I was in coma and he drove overnight to surprise me, got there at 6 a.m., gave me a big hug. And he told me later, it was like there was this light shining within me, like I was far more present than I'd ever been before. Mm. Uh, and I remember telling him it was way too real to be real. I mean, to me, that was the, whoa, what, wait a minute, how can this be? And then especially when I started diving in and my neuroscience knowledge is returning to me and I'm you know, discussing it all with my doctors, the medical details said, no, 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 this brain ha had no possible chance of mustering any kind of experience, uh, any kind of dream or hallucination because all those parts of my neocortex were far too damaged. Yeah. And that's why it's so shocking that I had this extraordinary experience. And it's one of the reasons, just as a quick aside, while, why in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, we make a big deal of you know, the last decade's worth of scientific papers showing that the human brain, under the influence of psilocybin, magic mushrooms, LSD, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, these are all chemicals that are called serotonin 2A agonist psychedelic drugs. And it turns out that the brain, under the influence of those drugs, goes dark. If you use functional MRI, use magnetoencephalography, all the many ways we can really look at the, the brain's function second to second, you realize that during those experiences with those entheogens, I like to call them, not hallucinogens, because that implies that what you're seeing isn't real, but they're entheogens. That's a better term for them. But they're not happening because of any activity in the brain. There's no part of the brain that increases activity. The whole brain kind of dissolves network, networks and gets out of the way. When I read that first paper in 2012 from Robin Carhart Harris on that subject, I said, I know what that feels like. I know what it's like to turn off your neocortex in your brain and see what an extraordinary set of visions and experience you can have. And uh, so me, for me, it just confirmed the deep and profound reality of my journey, which was the richest, most detailed experience I'd ever had in my life. So how do you explain that happening when the medical details showed that my brain was at its very worst function for my entire existence? I think... What you just said is very interesting to me because it was something I was going to ask you about. I had minor surgery. It was probably like maybe like four years into me working as, as a psychic. And I don't remember this, but apparently I wake up, the nurse is at my side. I tell her that her name or that, that her mother is there, that she has nine sisters, that this woman is Filipino, that she must be Filipino that she needs to say hi to Linda. Da, 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 da. I don't remember any of this. I wake up, there's three nurses at the side of my bed. And they're like, what do you see around me? <laughs> and, and I was like, uh, what? And it, it is something that I thought about a lot because I used to really struggle with that sense of like where and how are we interpreting the information that comes through energetically. And it came to me as this idea of like the brain's getting in the way. And the more that we can take a step aside, the more flow is actually available. For me, it was just internally, not proof, but an awareness as to interesting when my brain was actually more offline because of anesthesia, right. the information 
flowed so easily that there was no processing. There was no making, drawing conclusions as to what it could mean. So I find that very interesting to hear that the brain is going through the exact same experiences on psilocybin, on other types of, I guess, neuro-changing additives. And it makes me wonder when you take that into account, how has that changed or shaped your definition of consciousness? I wanted to like really start with what is your definition now based off of all the research, based off of what you're reading, what you believe? Well, I can tell you it's a 180 degree flip away from what I used to believe. Mm-hmm. What I used to believe was how I was trained, and that is uh, conventional scientific materialism or physicalism you know, that pretends that only the physical world exists, that the only stuff that's real is stuff that we can measure. And it turns out that that's just false. There is so much more going on in this world. And that's what uh, I think this is about. And also, it has to do with really getting down to the nuts and bolts of that brain-mind connection. Mm. I mean, we all know what mind is. We have mental experience. We have the phenomenal experience of, of being, of existing. But what I've come to realize is that we're basically sharing the self-awareness of the universe. And I don't know why it should surprise anybody that if the universe can come up with this kind of, you know, intelligence and self-awareness that seems to be based within a three and a half pound gelatinous mass floating in in a warm bath in my head, then, uh, wow, let's, let's explore this much more deeply in terms of what it's telling us about the nature of reality. And, and it really dr- drives you deeply into discussions of philosophical systems where you've got, for example, physicalism, materialism at one end, and that is brain must create consciousness. And that is, oh, we only exist birth to death. And that is, oh, we are completely associated with this physical body. There's no way our awareness can extend across space and time. Those are all false. You can prove that our mental experience is not our own and that there's a tremendous amount of overlap. And uh, telepathy is very real. So once you, you know, when you're in that space, you've, you've left behind the, the kind of false distinction between the material world and the non-material world and realize that you're part of all of it and all of it is part of you. Yeah. And uh, this is where the, the primacy of mind or spirit over matter is so important. And there are sci- a lot of scientists around the world who are deeply invested in this. And for your a viewing audience, I can suggest two websites that are very good for this. I serve as a scientific advisor for both groups, scientificandmedical.net, galileocommission.org. Both of those sites are devoted to kind of this evolving science of the primacy of consciousness. Our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, is a complete expose of the modern science and unification of science with spirituality concerning, uh, you know, spiritual experience fully defended by modern quantum physics and uh, neuroscience and philosophy of mind as being very uh, real reports about the nature of reality. So it is time for the scientific world to move beyond the simplistic, bleak and paltry fiction of materialism that tries to pretend the brain is creating consciousness, as opposed to realizing that the brain is a filter or a transceiver that allows only uh, you know, a limited eddy current of conscious awareness from primordial mind into our awareness. But then when we, when we die, going through that process, either in hospice and going on to die or in uh, a near-death experience, 
we go off into that uh, spiritual realm in a way that allows us to reflect back and see the connections that are much bigger, relating all of us together and sharing uh, purpose and meaning in our lives. And this is where I think the lessons of NDEs, which have been around for thousands of years and have a very common theme in spite of one's prior belief systems and kind of uh, worldviews, uh, it's all pointing to this world where we're connected through love through kindness, through compassion, mercy, acceptance. Those are the rules that govern that spiritual realm. And they're trying to penetrate down into this realm uh, as they have been for thousands of years. Religions have had an opportunity to try and bring this knowledge to people, but unfortunately, religious ideologies can come into conflict. And as opposed to sticking with the original message of the prophets, which is a very unifying message of love, kindness, mercy, and compassion. They try and control people and act like it's political parties and all this other nonsense. Mm -hmm. They should just follow the deep rules, which is that we're here to love each other, take care of each other, show kindness, mercy, and acceptance when necessary, forgiveness. These are the deep lessons of NDEs. And now that the science is fully supporting the reality of these journeys, I'm hoping that the world will start to rise up to this kind of higher level of existence where we acknowledge the higher good that we're all in this together and that it's all truly about love at the very deepest level. Mm. You talk about quantum mechanics, and I always like taking people through that just a bit because there's going to still be people that are just inherently on the fence, right? Like, okay, that sounds great, but when you say modern science is catching up, modern science is really showing that there is something more. And one of the access points that we have is quantum mechanics. What about that can you, and it's very complicated, I know, but how how can you kind of bridge it in a very simple way? Yeah, it's actually, um, you know, when you go back through the history of quantum mechanics over the last, you know, 123 years or so since Max Planck, first came up with, uh, with some of his ideas about uh, the quantum and the atom and light emission and absorption, all that kind of thing. It turns out that the experiments that they were doing, and, and uh, you know, these were very brilliant scientists, and they realized that there was, at the very core of these experiments, it's almost like there was kind of a mind of the universe that they were getting in touch with and realizing that that is our mind. I know that, for example, when John Wheeler was trying to explain quantum physics, he came up with this whole idea of the participatory anthropic principle. And this is in the mid 20th century. And what he was pointing out is that the mind of the scientist who's making these observations in many ways plays a role that's far beyond anything that would be expected just of material arrangements of particles. And there seems to be more of a free will involved. Uh, this becomes especially apparent, for example, in spontaneous healing, spontaneous remission, miraculous healing in NDEs, things like that, where you can see this extraordinary outcome of kind of higher will for the uh, benevolence and the, the, the best effects of the universe. That's what we're, we're seeing is that, uh, that will force, that mind force. And so participatory anthropic principle uh, such a powerful concept, and yet he could not see how what that was a statement of was saying mind is primary, and the physical universe and the arrangements in the physical universe are only secondary to mind. Uh, 
And there's something unifying about mind. I mean, Schrodinger, uh, Erwin Schrodinger, the, who wrote the Schrodinger equation, you know, which is central to understanding quantum physics in a very practical sense. He said, there appears to be only one mind. Uh, and it's not an accident. It's not derivative from matter. Max Planck had said similar things, you know, that you can't get behind consciousness. Uh, and, and the problem that the, what they lacked was modern neuroscience, modern uh, philosophy of mind, and modern parapsychological evidence of non-local consciousness. And that's what has evolved tremendously in the last few decades, is all that supporting evidence. And again, this is all uh, covered in Living in a Mindful Universe to kind of consolidate and unite this picture. Uh, but the reason quantum physics is so important is because the fundamental nature of these experiments, when we look at the subatomic structure of this reality around us, indicates that none of it exists independently of the mind of the observing uh, scientist or observer. Yeah, like Schrodinger's cat, Planck's, it's like whoever's looking at it is changing what is being looked at, right. which is then impossible to remove yourself from the equation. It becomes a catch-22. Right. And the, and the other important thing to remind people of is that, as Wheeler said in his participatory anthropic principle, he said he agreed with George Berkeley, an Irish theologian who had lived 200 years earlier, who was a renowned idealist. Uh, Berkeley was very uh, known for his idealist views that mind is it, that it's only perception. In other words, it's my perception of this world around that exists, but not the absolute things themselves. But the interesting thing is it allows us to kind of elevate up out of time and space. And, and quantum physics, the reason this all this discussion is so important is because every perception you've ever had, according to modern neuroscience, is the result of all that electrical and chemical uh, activity going on in your brain. And the mistake they make is thinking that it's all, that it creates it all right there in that physical substance, as opposed to realizing the brain is working as a transceiver. And never forget that every one of those thoughts, perceptions, every bit of your mental processing, according to modern neuroscience, has depended on ion channels and synaptic vesicles and neurons, completely quantum computers. They have nothing to do with the billiard, billiard ball determinism of Newtonian physics, which is what conventional science actually is appealing to. Because what quantum physics does is opens the door widely uh, to free will. Uh, because as John Eccles showed, he's a renowned uh, Australian neurophysiologist who won the Nobel Prize for a lot of his work. And as he showed in his book, The Self and Its Brain, uh, the energy considerations of those ion transfers, synaptic vesicles, et cetera, all of that stuff is so small that it easily fits within Heisenberg's uncertainty principle for the elements. That is, whether or not the neuron fires is completely determined by quantum principles. And this is where it's possible for this top-down causality, this primordial mind, uh, to be filtered into each one of us and appear to be separate eddies eddy currents of consciousness, and yet we're all interconnected. And the scientific data supports this very profoundly. And what the NDE literature does is it brings to you the, the deep reality that the very basis of our existence is one of love, compassion, kindness, mercy, acceptance of a loving uh, spiritual source of the universe. And the quantum physics 
is the findings of quantum physics and what's known as the measurement paradox and uh, entanglement, superposition, these incredible concepts are all wrapped up in the very same set of uh, kind of principles at the heart of quantum physics. And it's all because of that, uh, we've just kind of gotten it backwards in terms of what creates what and which direction the causality flows. But it really flows from top down so that all these subatomic particles in my brain are actually following a paradigm that's dictated from that primordial mind of the universe, the mind that we all share. That when you die and you separate from physical body and unite back with that force, you find that we're all truly bound together through these forces of love. Quantum physics was the first kind of main indicator of that back in the 20th century, even though parapsychology, with all of its evidence for non-local consciousness, had already pretty much answered the question but a lot of scientists weren't paying attention to the parapsychological findings. But now in the modern era, we have all the information and materialism is pretty much extinct. You know, no self-respecting, well-read, uh, quantumly informed student of mind and brain and modern science of consciousness would ever tell you that materialism is correct because it's not. There's too much evidence for non-local consciousness for this primordial mind that is playing such a role in all of our evolving uh, worldly experience. Do you feel with the current research that's out there, there's still a big question for you that's at the forefront? Like if there could be any new research study done and we could wave a magic wand and get you all the funding in the world, what would it look like? Well, I'm not exactly sure what it would look like. For example, I would say groups like Division of Perceptual Studies. If you go to uvadops.org, uh, that's a group I've worked closely with for uh, the last decade plus, and they've spent the last six decades studying near-death experiences, past life memories in children suggesting reincarnation, many parapsychological phenomena like psychokinesis, etc. So there are scientific groups that study this. Like the work of like Eva, Ian Stevenson as well, like that kind of work? Ian Stevenson and now Jim Tucker heading it up. And the other group I'll point out in the U.S. It's very renowned for this kind of work is the Institute of Noetic Sciences, mm -hmm. founded by uh, my good friend, uh, Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell, uh, who had this uh, spontaneous epiphany coming back from the moon in uh, 1971, where he realized the whole universe was conscious. And he was just sharing that consciousness. And he uh, formed up this Institute of Noetic Sciences. Dean Radin does a lot of tremendous work there. Those are scientific groups that are well along the pathway of showing kind of the model of what I think we need to move forward with all this. But I also want to point out something else for your listeners. And that is that there was a contest held in uh, tw uh, 2021 that has tremendous uh, implications for the question of the afterlife. And it was a contest run by Robert Bigelow, an aerospace engineer out in Las Vegas. He had lost his wife, his son had committed suicide. So he had very serious questions about well, where are they? How are they? Can I communicate with them? And so he put out a scientific question to the, to the scientific community. Question, what's the best scientific evidence for the continuation of conscious awareness after permanent bodily death? And to that uh, question, he ended up uh, getting uh, 29 essays that came from uh, groups that all demonstrated to have had at least five years scientific experience exploring the afterlife question. And those 29 essays are available for free to the reading public right now at bigelowinstitute.org. Go right there, start reading them. And uh, they're 
Many of them are very scientific. I can especially recommend uh, uh, Pim Van Lommel, second place essay, Bernardo Kastrup, Julie Beichel, very wonderful works. And also uh, Jeffrey Mishloff's first place essay is a tour de force that really kind of takes you with all these different lines of evidence and proves the reality of the afterlife. Uh, I would say it's been proven beyond any reasonable doubt. Yeah, Julie Beichel rings a bell. I think is she does she do research in Arizona or did she at one point? She does, and she runs a, a group, the Winbridge yes. Institute. Yes, and, Winbridge. That's right, out of right. Arizona. And they've done uh, quintuply blinded uh, scientific studies of mediums, identified uh, at least twenty mediums. At last time I saw their data, uh, who very satisfactorily completed. Uh, and, and in fact, when you read those protocols, you wonder how anybody could ever have any success. You know, they're given a first name. That's about all the evidence the medium gets. But as most mediums will tell you, they don't want a lot of information. They just want one little trace like a first name that can help them get to the target. Uh, And it's important that in the Winbridge study, one of the steps was that the sitter, that is the person who had lost the loved one, appealed to the soul of their lost loved one to connect the dots on the other side to help the, the medium get to the answers. And that, I think, is a crucial step that helps it all kind of come into fruition. Uh, but uh, I would highly recommend winbridge.org. is a beautiful resource for a lot of that uh, scientific study of mediums confirming the reality of this effect. Of course, it doesn't mean all mediums are great and wonderful because they're not. There's some out there who really don't know what they're doing, sadly enough. But there are plenty of mediums who can demonstrate incredible uh, kind of accuracy uh, and statistical uh, success mm. in these kind of endeavors. Yeah. I have um, a question that might veer it into a different direction a little bit because a lot of what I do these days is teach intuition. And for me, the definition of intuition is helping you in your own path. So it's that own universal consciousness that resides within every single one of us, the mind often getting in the way, but it's that sense of what's inherently good for you, where to go. How do you see your own relationship with that now that you've been meditating and now that you are aware of consciousness, is there an ongoing relationship with that voice and how does it present itself to you? How do you recognize it? Well, yeah, I would say intuition uh, has become something that, you know, I never would have called myself very intuitive before my coma. But I think since then, I've gained a tremendous amount of of intuition and a deeper sense of empathy uh, with others. I think when you take a deep dive like that uh, back into the the well of kind of that primordial mind, ultimate kind of source of our conscious awareness. Uh, you just, it's a refreshing dive indeed. And you come back from that, whoa, that's why near-death experiencers have no more fear of death. They, they become much more spiritual. Interestingly enough, the studies that ask the question show that they often become more spiritual, but less religious. And, you know, I'm certainly a big fan of religion when it can be useful to people for deep uh, spiritual progress. But sadly, the ideologies and kind of the political takeover of, uh, of some of this has is, is really been uh, uh, kind of tragic. So uh, it's really just getting back to the simple message that comes from NDEs of that love and that mm-hmm. compassion and kindness that I think help all of us to return to a much richer kind of alignment with our soul journey. Uh, and that it's really all about yeah. the higher good and helping take care of others. 
Uh, that's really kind of the deeper lesson that comes to all of us. For me, intuition is just a big indicator that I have a much deeper sense of connection with this primordial mind, with my fellow beings that are sharing mm. uh, this mind. Uh, and that's also where that empathy comes from. And in many ways, I would say that altruism, yeah. which is very difficult for materialist science to explain why it even exists, that you know strangers would risk their lives to help other strangers. Uh, and we see this in animal species, et cetera, across the world, this kind of altruism yeah. of beings helping other beings. Of yeah. uh, you know, It's just extraordinary. And I think that especially in the modern era, the more attention we pay to effects like that, the more we realize how beneficial this kind of uh, paradigm shift in our cultural understanding of the nature of reality uh, can be so, so beneficial. It'll be beneficial to humanity at large in the longer run, but right now, it can be of tremendous benefit to each and every one of us individually. So we can know that to take, mm. you know, minutes a day or uh, I try to meditate 40 minutes a day, hour a day, what have you, something like that. Uh, and by going within through uh, meditation, centering prayer. And of course, for me, meditation involves using uh, differential frequency brainwave entrainment. It's a very powerful tool that uh, affects mm. the lower brainstem and allows us to separate conscious awareness from the here, now, and sense itself. And people can learn more about that at sacredacoustics.com. And it's something we discuss a lot in Living in a Mindful Universe. So binaural beats, is that the same? Binaural beat brainwave entrainment, exactly. So... I'm, I'm curious because I have, I have a theory um, that I want to run by you <laughs> and I want to get your take on it. So when I've, when I've been teaching both psychic intuition, all of it, um, I was in long conflict between this idea of like vilifying the mind and the body and being like, Ooh, it's getting in the way. And then I had a moment where I was like, mm, it can really act in concert from the perspective that I believe we inherently spirit to spirit are in constant communication with everybody. So that idea of telepathy, the idea of environment, having information, all of it's simply energetic and that the body is simply trying to translate the energy in the best way it knows how. So sometimes people will get clairvoyance. Sometimes people will get clairsentience. Some people will get a, a thought, you know, like we haven't quite discussed how intuition shows up for you, but I'm sure that you're familiar with sometimes it's a feeling, sometimes it's a vision, sometimes it's something else. And for me, then that conversation has been not necessarily how do we create the information, but how do we get out of the way? And a lot of work around how do we de-stress the nervous system so that the information can rise up to the forefront. Now, one of those ways is through the work around decreasing trauma, because that creates an activated nervous system state and we just want to reduce it. But would you, how, how do you feel about that, that the body is actually just like acting as a translating tool and we can either allow for the translation to happen or not is my first question. And then my second question is, do you believe that all energetic information is inherently spiritual or is it simply just information that we're just constantly translating? Basically, I would say we live in a spiritual universe where spiritual beings, so ultimately all the answers are going to have to do with that connection, with that primary connection kind of behind the scenes. Um, and uh, I think the, the information um, is something that we acquire through resonance. Uh, that principle of resonance, information overlap, kind of constructive interference, I think is a huge part of how we navigate those spiritual realms. And I would say that, 
you know, as much as the information can be viewed as, quote, neutral, for example, I would say that the life review, you know, which occurs in 25 to 50 percent of near-death experiences has been described going back thousands of years. The life review is kind of like the golden rule being written into the fabric of the universe. Because the life review, for one thing, people describe it as being more real than real. They describe it as a reliving, not just a remembering of events. That's a very important concept because it helps you understand why NDEs are ineffable, why they're inexplicable in our words. And it's because you're completely outside of time so that you can witness your entire life, birth to death, lifetimes before and after, all that can be shown to you in the spiritual realm. So it's a different time flow. It's what I call meta time or deep time that allows for all the elements of earth earth time to be simultaneously uh, presented to us. But that is just beginning to give you a glimpse of how powerful that realm is. You've spoken about binaural beats twice and your your work alongside it. What's happening in the brain around binaural beats that would allow you to get out of the way or would inherently turn the brain off the slightest bit? (laughs) Okay. First of all, every uh, sound that you've ever heard that might have engendered a deep state of of spiritual awareness, like a chant or anthem or hymn, those are all processed up in the acoustic uh, cortex and the temporal lobes. These are circuits that have mainly evolved in the last uh, two or three million years in primates and homo sapiens. Very, very different from binaural beat brainwave entrainment. Binaural beats were discovered in the mid-1800s by a Prussian physicist. He found if you put a single pure tone in one ear, for example, 100 hertz, 100 cycles per second, and a slightly different tone, let's say 104 hertz, Uh, in the other ear. Somewhere in the brain, you generate a signal that's the arithmetic difference between the two tones. So you will get a four hertz signal out of 100, 104. Um, And it turns out that in the 20th and late 20th century, investigators like Robert Monroe, who was very interested in out-of-body experiences, discovered that binaural beats could induce very powerful out-of-body experiences. So since your, your initial NDE experience have you had any more, through the use of binaural, through the use of other modalities, possibly substances that alter consciousness, has there been other really key markers for you that have opened up like a new window, a new awareness? Well, absolutely. In, in fact, we tell the story in Living in a Mind for Universe of the first connection I had with my adoptive father's soul. He had passed over four years before my coma. Like I said earlier, if I had scripted it, he would have been there front and center, but he was nowhere to be found. And I encountered him in deep meditation using binaural beat brainwave entrainment about two and a half years after my coma. And it was an extraordinary vision. Uh, I describe it all in Living in a Mindful Universe, uh, this great story. It's a great book, and I encourage everybody to go and read it. All three, all three books. You've been a prolific writer, so you got quite a few the map of heaven is the one we haven't mentioned, and map of heaven's the one in the middle, and that really was just my uh, explanation to people. I many people would come up to me and say, "Oh, you're you know this Harvard neurosurgeon had this experience," and I'd say, "No, no, no, no. This is a very common experience. Many, many millions of people have had these experiences. Uh, there are literally hundreds of thousands of reports in the internet, in the scientific literature, etc. It's not just me. This is a very common thing, you know." 
Um, and people needed to hear that for, uh, for some reason after reading Proof of Heaven, they, d- they did not appreciate that this was an extremely common experience that happens to uh, the vast majority of us, if not all of us. How many people, I'm actually just curious at the statistic of people who nearly die have the experience? It's probably around 15 to 20 percent. And that number comes from, for example, Pim Van Lommel, the Dutch cardiologist who wrote a beautiful paper in the highly esteemed medical journal Lancet back in 2001 about his experience with hundreds of cardiac arrest patients. And he found that 18 percent of those cardiac arrest patients reported these kind of things that would uh, satisfy the NDE scale, you know, the Grayson uh, Bruce Grayson's uh, NDE scale, uh, to get a score of at least seven out of 32. My score was, I think, 28 or 29. Um, So I had a very profound NDE, but in fact, I lost points because of the one atypical feature, the amnesia. Lost points, Uh, man. (laughs) But uh, the reality is... I lost some points there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever. It is what it is. But, uh, you know, all these stories are beautiful gifts. Because that's why I love you know, reading NDEs, hearing from NDEers. Uh, after I give talks, people come up to me afterwards and say, I've never told anybody this before, but, and then they'll share a story with me that would change the world. That was a lot of the impetus for that book, Map of Heaven, was we shared a lot of those kind of common stories of spiritual experience. And they can happen to atheists and agnostics. They can happen to any of us. Uh, but it, it's really, they're all a message for the world at large to wake up to this profound truth that we're truly uh, all in this together. And we need to honor that binding force of love, which is the deepest message in the ears return with. Mm, that's beautiful. I love that as a, as a closing note. And thank you so much for sharing your, your wisdom and your truth. I think it's, it's a beautiful combination to have you as a voice piece for the experience because there is a validity and a seriousness to it so i think you're you're the perfect person thank you very much Fleur, for all you do and for getting this out to the world i appreciate it very much thank you take care bye all right you take care too bye bye brain fog insomnia moodiness weight gain Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.